Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the blessings you've given us, for your watch care, your mercy, your love, and we ask that you enlighten our minds as we study about you and empower us to be effective witnesses for your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A couple of announcements. I just want to remind everybody that uh, Come and Reason Ministries is a not-for-profit ministry on Amazon. That you can Amazon has this smile.amazon.com where you can designate one not-for-profit uh, with, associated with your account. And then whenever you make purchases, a small percentage, they will donate to Come and Reason Ministries. And, and so we've been, been designated uh, as, a, as a not-for-profit with them for several years. But I just wanted to remind people because I found out recently people didn't really realize we could do that. And so when you purchase, just st- sign into smile.amazon.com. Amazon, and then do your normal purchase, and then a small donation comes to, to this ministry every every quarter. Common reason title. There are two common reasons in there. You have to be very careful. Select the one from from the College of Chattanooga area. There's one in California has a similar name, so be sure you get the right one. And then, as you know, last week I wasn't here. I was out in Dallas. I was out at the American Association of Christian Counselors National Convention. It was extremely well uh, received. We had people coming up from all over the country telling us how much they appreciate us, the, the materials that they use. Uh, one gentleman um, came uh, up to me and uh, it told, told me that he attends a church in the Midwest. He's on the pastoral team there uh, that has about 3,000 members attending, attending 3,000 attending each week. And their pastoral team got together in the last quarter and decided to to revamp their whole evangelism and and preaching platform using our materials. So, and praise the Lord for that. They love the healing message and they want to present the gospel um, through, through the design law lens. So we're very thankful to hear that. All right, today we're doing lesson two in the book of Job. And the title this week is called The Great Controversy. And I want you to be thinking, what advantages, if there are any, to look at scripture through the, the lens of the great controversy. And the question is, is this idea of the great controversy actually taught in scripture? Or is it something that was created by the Seventh-day Adventist Church as a theological you know, perspective? One of the members of our class received this email from a person that questions the, legit- the legitimacy of the great controversy perspective. And this is the email. It says, the main issue of doubt has been Ellen G. White's toxic great controversy dogma. Her whole book is an anthology of atrocities emphasizing Satan's evil, hopefully to persuade the universe that God is good. She portrays a God so obsessed and consumed with his eventual vindication that he uses mankind as guinea pigs in his grand experiment to overcome Satan. 6,000 years and counting of abysmal accumulated atrocities and an avalanche of anguish do not seem to have persuaded God's entourage of extraterrestrials to vote for God nor to indict Satan. This despite Ellen G. White's enlisting them as the jurors, deciders, arbiters in this dispute. These extraterrestrials must have the mental capacity of primitive primates, as depicted in the movie Planet of the Apes, not to have reached a definite denouncement nor an adequate arbitration eons ago. That we are held hostage to incompetent, inept space aliens is terrifying. What is even more nightmarish is if these aliens have the street smarts to perceive mankind's misery, but despite this, they remain in total equanimity, uncaring, uncompassionate, totally lacking in concern or commiseration. Surely then they, they are complicit with Satan if they do not clamor for God to end this carnage. Our fate is in the hands of extra... Our fate is in the hands of extraterrestrials, either incompetent or uncaring, or both. Not a happy prospect. Ellen G. White's scenario, as bizarre as a Star Wars movie, with space aliens playing the major role, it invites derisive ridicule and, not, and does not hold water. Okay, what do you want to say to her, this person? What do you want to say? 
Turn off your television. Ah. Turn off your television. Did Ellen White and the SDA Church make up the controversy between good and evil that ex- transcends humanity and earth and extends to the cosmos, focusing on God's character and methods, or is that soundly scriptural and biblical and comes from the Bible? What do you think? Well, I want to point out, I want to say this up front so that you will notice as we go along, what we're going to do today is we're going to use scripture and scripture alone. For those who don't know who Ellen White is, she was one of the founders of Seventh-day Adventist Church. And one of her main statements was that for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the Bible and the Bible alone is our creed. The Bible and the Bible alone. Okay, So let's use the Bible and the Bible alone and see if we can't see if, in fact, this idea of a controversy over God's character that includes non-terrestrial, non-earth-based life forms is actually a sound biblical teaching or not. So I already heard somebody mention Revelation 12, 7. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. Just with this text, and we're going to keep going through more text, but with this text, who are the combatants in this text? Extraterrestrials. Extraterrestrials. Okay. Michael and his angels are fighting against Satan and his angels. These are non-earth-based beings in a war. Our very first text takes us outside of planet Earth where we have conflict going on. Next question. What kind of war was this? Would the opponents of the great controversy idea, those who wrote the criticism I just read, suggest that the war between good and evil is a battle for who is most powerful, who has the most strength and might? Do you think they would suggest that? No, they wouldn't. The opponents of the great controversy idea see God as, as powerful and sovereign. Then if it's, not a, a might, if it's not a war over who is most powerful, then what would the war be over? War for your mind. A, a war for your mind, but over what? Who was right. Who is right. And so even, so the idea of the war, the idea is false allegations against God. And the Greek in Revelation twelve seven, there was war in heaven. The Greek for the word war is polemo, from where we get polemic. And a polemic is a verbal argument. And so this war was a war of words, a war of ideas, that uh, that Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon and his angels with words and ideas. The question then is, what is the central issue in this war of ideas? And we want to use the Bible. So, So far we've got a Bible text that frames the war with extraterrestrials over words and ideas. We've got that text. Now we want to know, well, okay, words and ideas, but that text didn't tell us what it was over. Is there a Bible text that do tell us what it's over? Isaiah. 2 Corinthians 10. Okay. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, they're not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument. Again, notice what we're demolishing. We're not demolishing every wall, every fortified city, every submarine, every nuclear attack vessel. We're not, we're not demolishing physical um, armaments of war. We're demolishing every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. So we have a war beginning with extraterrestrials that is a polemic war, a war of rewards and ideas that the scriptures tells us focuses the central issue on the knowledge of God. With two texts, we've already framed there's a, there's a controversy over God's character being waged with, not only on earth, but also in heaven. But, but there's much more evidence. We're going to go beyond that. Where did the false ideas about God originate if you believe scripture? 
Satan is the father of? Lies. So again, notice we're just using Scripture here. And Satan, the father of lies, is the same as Revelation 12.7, the dragon. Everybody knows that, right? So the dragon and his angels are fighting. Satan, the father of lies, polemic war of words. Satan's weapons in this war of words are lies or falsehoods. And they focus on the knowledge of God. So Satan is telling lies about God that undermines confidence and trust. The central focus of Satan's lies, we just mentioned, are, and is there evidence, other evidence of him doing this in Scripture? If you look at the history of planet Earth, where is the first place we see Satan telling lies about God? Did God really say... Oh, come on. God didn't really mean that, did he? Oh, he's not really for you. He's against you. He's trying to keep the, keep all this stuff. Right in Genesis, you see him beginning to lie about God. There it is. Boom. Now, what was the impact? What is the consequence? You go, okay, big deal. Okay, there's a lot. What's the consequence, though, in a living, sentient being to believing lies about God? Is there an impact? Is there an effect from that? Trust is broken. Yes. Remember the example, loving marriage, you love and trust your spouse, somebody lies to you that your spouse is having an affair, even though they're not. If you believe the lie, something inside you changes. What changes? Love and trust is broken. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. And broken love and trust, I don't trust you anymore. I think you're cheating on me, even though you're not, but I believe you are. So I believe the lie. I think you're cheating on me. I don't trust you anymore. Now what? I'm afraid. I'm afraid you're going to bring me disease. I'm afraid you're going to hurt me. I'm afraid you take advantage of me. So I got to watch out for myself. Lies believe, break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness being implanted in the heart. And that results in destructive actions or behaviors. Self-protective, survival, the fittest drive stuff. This is a terminal condition. So, in, in humanity, this idea, this, this way of, of emoting, this way of, of operating, got planted into Adam and Eve when lies about God were told. And what problem did that cause? Did that problem just stick with Adam and Eve? Was it just Adam and Eve's problem? Or have we had a problem because of what Adam and Eve done? It did. Well, how, how is it that we have a problem? Why do we have a problem because of what Adam and Eve did? Why? Is that fair? I didn't do it. Adam did it. Why should I have a problem for that? Is that's not right. That's not fair. Why do we have a problem today because of what Adam and Eve chose to do? They believe the lies. They broke trust with God. Why should we have a problem today? Why? There's a reason. Why? We were born in sin. Why were we born in sin? That's right. Psalms 51, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. What's that mean? That behavior rewired their DNA, rewired their brains. They passed that defect along to their offspring. Okay. So forth and so on. Thousands of generations. What he just gave, he described design law. Remember which law lens are you looking through? Looking through a system of rules. Well, they did the bad deed. They should be punished. It's not fair. We, we don't deserve it. We didn't do anything wrong. That's not right that we should have this problem. That's human law construct. Design law construct, HIV infected man and HIV infected or woman, not HIV infected, decide to go out and do IV drugs and they infect themselves with HIV for doing IV drugs. And they're both now HIV infected, man and woman. And they get together and they have a child. And the child is born HIV infected. What did the child do wrong? Child didn't do anything wrong. Still got a condition. Why? Well, why? Because of how human beings are designed. God said, let us make man in our image. God is a creator. 
And he said, let them be fruitful and multiply. So God constructed Adam and Eve with the capacity to develop, to advance, to make changes in themselves. And the neuroscience and and biology today shows us that the choices you make, not just in behavior, foods you eat, that's true, toxins you put in your system, if you drink alcohol, do drugs, that's true, but, but the thoughts you think actually change which genes are turned on and genes are turned off in your body. And when you have kids, you not only pass along the DNA sequences, you pass along the instructions on how those sequences will be expressed. And so God created them in his image with the ability to create beings in their image. And thus, when they changed themselves, they had children born like them in their image. And that's why you can read in Romans, I believe it's around chapter 5, when Paul talks about that sin was in the world even before the law was given at Sinai because those people died between the time of Adam and the time of Moses, even though no one broke a specific command like Moses did, I mean, like Adam did. What he's saying is it wasn't a legal problem. They weren't in legal trouble because of what Adam did. They had a condition of being that was out of harmony with God's design. That's why they were dying. Their condition was terminal. What is Satan's agenda in this war? He starts a war, a polemic, extraterrestrials in heaven, warring over knowledge of God stuff. But what's his goal? What's his end game? What's he trying to achieve? To deceive as many as possible. To deceive as many for, but it's true. He wants to deceive as many for what goal? For what, for an end game? To set my throne above the most. Say that? Selfish. It is selfish to, to achieve what though? What's he want to have? What's the outcome? What, what's his vision of, of the universe if he gets his way? He's number one. Ah, he's, he's number one, meaning? Power. Number one where? Number one in power? No. I don't think Satan ever suggested that he would end up with more power, physical might and power than God. I don't think it was, I, I think with some level he knew he can't speak things into existence. He is not the origin of all energy, life, matter, space, time. I think he understood he was never going to be able to possess the power of God. But what could he possess? What could he get to himself? Our hearts and our minds. Okay. He could get the intelligent beings in the universe to adore him and value him and worship him and follow him and put him first in the hearts and minds of beings and displace God out of the, 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 the spirit temple as the one most adored and most loved. His agenda was to win the love and trust and, and admiration and, and following of intelligent beings away from God. And suddenly, most who are doing that are worshiping a satanic version of God. They would never think that they're worshiping Satan. Do we have other scriptures? Can you think now as, we're, as we've I've laid some groundwork here for you? Has your computers, these things, this brain in your head, been, been going um, along and, and, and texts have been popping into your mind now that fit and show evidence of a, of a controversy, including extraterrestrials? Any, any, any text popping in anybody's mind? We are a theater and a spectacle to angels and men. First Corinthians four nine. Paul says we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men. So Paul's telling us clear something something more is going on. Other other text. Ephesians six twelve. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. How about the story of the demoniac? What's your name? Legion. What's going on there? How about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? Who's tempting Jesus in the wilderness? Satan. Is this an earth being? Is this an extraterrestrial being? 
tempting Jesus in the wilderness. There's an extraterrestrial being going on here. This idea that it centers over the trustworthiness of God. I gave you the one text out of 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 that we war against everything and sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Is there texts that even more explicit that say God is the one on trial? May you win your case. Yes, Romans chapter 3, verse 4. God must be true, even though every human being is a liar. As the scripture says, you must be shown to be right when you speak. You must win your case when you are being tried. Speaking of God. Wait, how can God be put on trial? Who could put God on trial? Back to that analogy of a husband and wife and an innocent spouse is lied about, hasn't done anything wrong, and, and the other spouse is told that, that a lie that they've been cheating, and the spouse believes. And, and maybe put yourself in, in the role of the innocent spouse. Your spouse believes a lie that you've been cheating, and you haven't been. And so your spouse is angry. Your spouse moves out. You love your spouse still. You know you've done nothing wrong. You want reconciliation. You know your spouse is a victim of a liar. What will you have to do in order to have your marriage heal? Won't you have to prove your innocence? Even though you've done nothing wrong, who's the one on trial here? The innocent. Because somebody believes a lie about you. That's exactly what's happening in Scripture. God has always been innocent, always been good, always been righteous, always been faithful, always been low. And Paul recognized that God, may you win your case when you take it into, into court, or may you win your case when you are being tried. Tried by who? Who's the jury? Who's making a decision? The universe. The entire universe, that's right. Including? So how does God win his case? Now what's the method God uses to win? Evidence. Zechariah 4.6, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. How does the Spirit work? What's the Spirit's method according to Scripture? The Spirit of truth. The spirit of truth presented in love, leaving people free. This is what God uses. Do you notice how we're making this case for this controversy? We have, we've used only scripture so far. Scripture, scripture, scripture. It's all there. So Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. Whose fullness is dwelling in Christ? This is really important. You see, if you operate under a penal model, and the penal model says, well, justice requires the death of the guilty, and God loved us too much, and in his system he'll allow an innocent, sinless being to pay the penalty for the sinful being, so an innocent, sinless being comes to pay that penalty named Jesus, well, then why doesn't an angel come? A sinless angel who has never sinned give his life to save the guilty. Why wasn't it an angel? Why was it the Son of God himself? Because the allegations in heaven were not about angels. Satan didn't allege angels couldn't be trusted. He was an angel. He was actually alleging he could be trusted more than God. His allegations were that God could not be trusted. An angel could not reveal truth about God. And in fact, if an angel had come, it would have revealed that God was willing to sacrifice one of his creatures to protect himself. It would have revealed selfishness on God's part. So it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
heavenly things, sinless beings being reconciled through the cross? How is this possible? They didn't need a legal payment. What did they need? They needed clarity. They needed clarity. They needed the the lies of Satan exposed and the truth of God revealed so they could have certainty. See, the loyal beings in heaven chose to say loyal, but they didn't have all their questions answered. And as we look at the book of Job, which is what we're studying this time, all this is laying the groundwork through a controversy, we see behind-the-scenes conflict being waged in the book of Job. Right in the very beginning, first chapter, behind-the-scenes extraterrestrial conflict going on. What are the issues at stake in the book of Job? And it's not a single issue. When you look at the book of Job, you can look at the book of Job from what's happening in Job's life. You can look at the book of Job, what's happening from Satan's perspective. You can look at the book of Job, what's happening from the sons of God who've gathered. You can look at the book of Job, what's happening from God and his agenda. You can see the same things are happening, but there are different agendas. Satan has a different agenda than God has at the same time. Okay? In the allegation that I read from that email, it says that in the Great Controversy theme, we're all a bunch of guinea pigs. Pawns being moved around a chessboard so God can win his case in a heavenly court. Is that what you see in the book of Job? God's winning his case in a heavenly court by using Job as a pawn. Many people see the great controversy this way, that that's what's happening. Let me ask you this. Do doctors utilize, I don't want to say the word use because that could be misunderstood, utilize sick patients to teach medical students and nursing students and, and others. Do they do that? They sometimes write up case studies about, about unusual patients. Are they using the patients as pawns? No, well, we're not talking Mengele and people who do dastardly experiments. We're talking about mature, altruistic doctors who really want to do the best for the patient. We're, so yes, there can be evil people who have done that. We're not talking about those. In the vast majority of cases, when doctors are doing their best to help their patients, can they still utilize that opportunity to teach? Does that mean because they're utilizing the opportunity to teach and educate about disease, about health, about curing disease and how you cure it, that they are using the patients as pawns, as guinea pigs? Does that mean that? No. Think about what's happening in the book of Job and what's happening in this controversy on earth. Is God using are real-world experiences to teach lessons? Yes, I think he is. Does that mean, though, he's using us as guinea pigs and pawns? No, that's a distortion. That's a lie. Yes? Could Job be a, just a good witness to his love and faith in God? This is, this is a very uh, classic interpretation that Job is a good witness. God calls him to the witness stand of the universe. I've used that in some of my own books and writings. I think that is one perspective that's happening. Just as, could this patient be a good witness to how this cure works? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean he's a guinea pig. The patient that you, you, that you pull forward to show how this great cure works is a patient who already has the condition, already has the problem, who needs the cure. You follow what I'm saying? So um, Tim Mesendek, who is the chairman of, uh, of Sozo Initiative and a pastor uh, that I met in, in Dallas last week, sent me his uh, paper that he wrote on the thoughts on the book of Job, and I thought I had some excellent insights, which we're going to probably revisit throughout the quarter. But 
this morning, some of his insights I thought were very, very nicely done, that there are simultaneously things happening. One, God is giving lessons to the universe. But simultaneous, if you, and you have to think about this through the lens of a doctor teaching patients, something else is happening in the book of Job. Um, God is not using Job as a pawn, that's for sure. But God allowed events to transpire that would simultaneously heal and further mature Job. Look at the context of Job chapter 1. What do you see happening? What does Job reveal about himself in chapter 1? Now, God says he's perfect and mature, righteous in all his ways. There's no one on earth like him. We're going to come back to exactly what that means. But what did Job do in chapter 1? What was his big action in chapter 1? Sacrifices of repentance. He sacrifices for who? Others. Ah, so in Job chapter 1, what view of God does Job reveal he holds? Does Job reveal that, that he has fear for his children? Fear of how God might deal with his children. And so Job intercedes with a sacrifice for his children's sake. Attempt to appease, perhaps. I think it was fear-based. If you look at it, he was afraid. He was afraid the kids might have done something to offend God, and he offers a sacrifice for them. Job chapter 1. Job chapter 2. What do you see in Job chapter 2? This is where Job says this big famous statement that is probably quoted worse, uh, more than any other quote from the book of Job. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. The Lord giveth and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What view of God is he revealing here? The Lord brings on disasters. Right. So is he revealing there is still some lack of understanding in his own mind? Do you think that's an accurate picture of what was actually happening? Job had clear discernment when he said that. No. He has fear of God in relation to others in chapter 1, fear of God in relation to him in chapter 2 and what God is doing, some God concept ideas. And then chapters 3 through 37 in the book of Job, for the next 35 chapters, we have Job's friends. And do Job's friends demonstrate a trust and confidence in God or fear of God? And an accurate picture or distorted picture of God? And then notice what happens in chapter 38 in Job. God finally gets his day in court. God finally gets where they listen, and God gets to defend himself against all this distortion and misunderstanding about himself. And the first thing God does in chapter 38 with Job, basically, is show that he's creator. He shows creatorship. What kind of law does creation operate upon? Design law. He takes Job and shows him, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And so forth and so on. And he shows that he is the creator who built reality to function. God is not arbitrary. God doesn't arbitrarily put stuff on people, doesn't punish people arbitrarily, bring disease and do that kind of stuff. That's, that's not God. And in this conversation, in Job 38, Job is finally freed from his misconceptions and his fears. And notice what Job does in chapter 42. He comes boldly before God. I'm going to read to you Job 42, 1 through 4. Notice the boldness now of Job. And, and you, hopefully when I said that, your, your computers grabbed Hebrews chapter 4. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy. Okay? Notice the boldness of Job here. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee like... 
the thoughts that I'm having about you doing this to me? Okay. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I, Job, will demand of thee, God, and declare thou unto me. Notice, boldness. I will demand of you, God. Boldness. And then if you go down in chapter 42, verse 5. So so the point, Job in chapter 1, so the, the big theme, what, what uh, Pastor Mezendek is suggesting, and I agree with him from Job's experience, Job was born in sin, conceived in iniquity like every one of us. Job had fears and insecurities in his heart. Job had come to a point that he had trust in God, but he hadn't had all the distortions and misconceptions and fears removed. Chapter 1, we, Job still struggles with fear about how God will treat his kids. Chapter 2, he has fears and uncertainty about how he's being treated by God. The book unfolds in chapter 38 through 42. Job comes to realize God is the creator. His laws are design laws. He's not arbitrary. God deals with grace and mercy with all. And so Job boldly comes before him. And in verse 5, he experiences God for himself. And in verse 6, he comes to repentance. And he humbles himself before the Lord and is transformed finally with the, with the full freedom that God wants us to have. And then, of course, the end of the story is, in that relationship, the door is open for God to pour the restoration channels upon him, and more than he lost was restored upon him. What do you think about this idea? And simultaneously to that, so this is not exclusive, it's not this and that, while this is happening, so as you see God permitting this, not as a punishment for Job, not simply using Job as a pawn to defend himself in a heavenly tribunal, but because Job still needed to do some maturing of his own. And simultaneously, while this is happening and Job is maturing, God is like a good teacher using Job's experience to reveal to the heavenly universe some things that they wouldn't have otherwise learned about himself and about Satan. In this war, when was Satan cast out of heaven? When? There's war in heaven. Michael's angels fought, and, and, and Satan's angels fought back. When was he cast out of heaven? In Job chapter 1, we see that Satan's up in heaven still, walking around. Where are you coming from? From earth, but, but he's up in heaven. He's still got access to the heavenly courts. So when was he cast out? The crucifixion. Oh, at the crucifixion. So, John chapter 12, 31 and 32. Jesus is speaking, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. Now, if you have a version that says all men, the word men is not in the Greek. That's supplied. So you can put a little X through it in your version and eliminate it. He will draw all into himself. And so from the remedy, those two verses... Now is the time for the infection of selfishness and sin in this world to be fully diagnosed and revealed as destructive. Now Satan, the prince of this selfish world, will be driven out into the open, out of the shadows, out from behind the lies and distortions about God and God's methods, out where all can see him as the murderer he truly is, and thus out of the hearts of all who love me. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all intelligences throughout the universe to me. See, that's where he's driven out of. He wasn't driven out of a physical proximity or a physical location. As I understand it, he was driven out of the hearts and minds of all beings who love God and who, who come to see the truth. What, what does it mean that Satan is, is bound to this earth? 
What binds him here? He's got to have like some supernatural force shield and Satan tries to leave there. It's a can't get out. Is that what's happening? What, bind, what, what keeps him here? This is the only place that will still listen to his lies. At the cross, all the intelligent beings that you see in the book of Job, for instance, that were willing to give Job a moment in court to hear his arguments, to hear his perspectives. After the cross, it's talk to the hand. We're not listening to you anymore. All hearts and minds were permanently closed. He had, he had solidified the rest of the universe in loyalty to God and, and closed their hearts and minds to him. So the only place on, in the universe that beings still listen to his ideas about God are here on earth. So he's bind by the circumstance, by the settling into the truth about God. What about this allegation that, that angels are slow to understand? That was an allegation in that email I read earlier. The angels are so slow. They're so inept. They're like in Planet of the Apes primates. Um, What about this idea? It's taken so long for them to figure it out. What has actually taken so long? Has anyone in this room, besides myself, had people, because I've I've, I've experienced this, had people go through your community and tell lies about you? Has anybody had that experience? If you've had that experience, can you simply set it right by declaring the truth? What's necessary? It takes time, doesn't it, to reveal the truth? Yeah. That's, that's what it takes time. The more subtle the lies, the better the liar, the longer it takes to expose them. It wasn't under the cross that the full malignity of Satan was revealed and God's true character was revealed. But then you say, okay, well, 2,000 years later, why? Why 2,000? Because on earth, how? think about the gospel. Has the gospel of the kingdom of God gone to the world? God as the designer, the lover of our souls, the one who creates things to operate on the principles of love gone to the world? Or instead has this dictator view of God gone to the world? This is what he's still waiting for. So after all this, you notice we just used the Bible here today. Have we made a biblical case for the great controversy? And there's many, many more Bible texts we didn't touch on. Classics like Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah chapter 14 and, and many other places in Scripture we didn't touch on. But we touched on enough that this is a clear, central teaching of Scripture. Tim, without the great converse perspective, isn't it implied that God is the author and creator of evil? Correct. Correct. And if we misunderstand the problem, then we misunderstand the solution. And if we misunderstand the problem and the solution, then we, we're, in our ministry, in our evangelism, we are teaching a false solution, also known as a false gospel. And that's why so much of Christianity is inept. It doesn't change lives because they've got the wrong problem, and the solution they're telling people doesn't work to change lives. Sunday's lesson, second paragraph, it says, Job certainly seems to have it all, including a righteous character. The word translated in Job 1.1 as blameless comes from the word that can mean complete or full of integrity. The word for upright means straight, which can give the idea of walking on a straight path. In short, the book opens with the almost Eden-like sense seen depicting a wealthy man of faithfulness and integrity who has it all. So what do you see happening in this perspective? Now we're going to shift perspectives. Way in the back. David says, from what I understand, E.G. White's picture, the only reason God created a tree of knowledge of good and evil is to settle a controversy between Christ and Satan that has always bothered me, using humans to prove a point. Okay, so there's that same concern. Was the, was the only reason to create the tree to prove a point? No. No, absolutely not. That 
premise is a false premise. Wherever that premise came from, it, it is not the, the teaching of Scripture, nor is it the teaching of Ellen White. What are the two reasons for the tree? Number one, what, uh, if you believe you know, what, what we've already laid out, was the controversy that began in heaven with these extraterrestrials, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and his angels, did that begin before or after Eden? Before. Before. So there's already a controversy in the universe when Adam and Eve were created. So what then, in, the, in, in that context, what were the purpose of the tree? Two purposes. Protection of Adam and Eve. Number one, Satan could only approach them at the tree. Think about this. If you could only experience temptation at one tree on this whole planet. <laughs> you could travel the whole planet and never have any temptation of any kind. Except one tree. Wow. That, see, we can't even comprehend that because we're tempted everywhere. They could only be tempted at the tree. That's the only place. Makes you wonder how Eve ended up there. Yeah. And, then, and then the second reason, if you understand design law and how design... God can create perfect, sinless beings. He cannot create, by an act of power, mature character. Mature character requires the exercise of the individuality of the sentient being to determine what character they will develop. Will they develop a character of loyalty, faithfulness, truthfulness, integrity, or will they develop the character of a liar, a fraud, and a cheat? That re- Now, God can create robots, for sure, that are programmed to look like they're making free choices, but they're all programmed by him. He could do that, but that's not free sentient beings. Is everybody with me? With that in mind, the tree was placed there for their development for them to be able to exercise their genuine freedom and choose loyalty, thus maturing and developing and advancing themselves in God's pathways. So it was not for their fall. It was for the solidification of their character and righteousness. That's what it was for. And they could never have achieved that without being faced with a decision that they would freely choose to establish, this is who I am. I choose honesty, not deceptiveness. Yes. Might there have been a tree and one other planet in the universe? Now we're going to go outside Scripture. And if you value Ellen White's writings, Ellen White actually says that all the other planets have trees of knowledge and good and evil, and only the uh, Adam and Eve on Earth chose to take of that fruit. The rest of them all chose loyalty and solidified themselves in mature character. So that's, that's extra-biblical. Um, so we can't make that case from Scripture about the tree, but she does endorse that idea. It makes sense that all the intelligences would have to make a decision for loyalty or for, or for disloyalty to God. So, if you notice what's happening now in the first chapter of Job, there's a council in heaven. Satan comes from walking to and fro on the earth. Where have you come from? From the earth. God makes a judgment, if you want to use that word, about Job. He's perfect and blameless and righteous. What, what in the book of Job, what being... Do you find in the text that was pleading with God to give a good ruling for Job? Do you notice that there anywhere? Because the traditional view of the judgment is that we have to have an advocate plead to the Father to give us a good ruling. My blood, and apply my blood to his count, so when you look at the record, you make a good ruling for him. Do we see anything like that happening here? No, God just gives a good ruling. There's no pleading to God for this. And we also see, was there evidence presented? Did someone, were there books opened? No, just a ruling on his nature, his character. Um, is there an accuser, though, in heaven? Do we find an accuser? 
And this is the only place that Satan is identified as an accuser in Scripture. Now, you see it in Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua the high priest, an accuser. You see it in Revelation, one stands before day and night accusing us before. before the, Satan is the accuser, always the accuser. Who defended Job to this accuser? Who's the one who stands on Job's side? God himself. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son. How much of our Christian theology is God is a judge waiting to make a ruling. Jesus is pleading our case. and No, God is on Job's side. He's pleading the case. God is for us. Who can be against us? It's always the case in Scripture. God's on our side. Notice the verdict that God gives is a verdict of character. Not a verdict of behavior. Job has never done anything wrong in his life. That's not what was said. Job has made no mistakes. Job's had no sin in his life. It doesn't say that. It's not about deeds done. There's something else implied in this first description, and that is Satan is making a claim. Satan is coming and, and portraying himself as the absolute ruler. We're going to get there. Okay. We're going to get there. But that's the exactly point, and you're just about a, about a paragraph ahead of my notes. So, but you're exactly right. That's a huge point we want to get to. But I wanted to get this, this a judgment scene kind of flushed all the way out. When God said that Job was blameless or perfect, what is meant by that? Because I made some observations earlier from, from Tim's perspective that job had fear and insecurities and misunderstanding still but god is saying so some people might take issue because god is saying he's perfect and righteous in all his ways or blameless uh, so so that so because god's saying that he can't have these issues still god is um having job job is manifesting god's character mm-hmm. so so when god said he's blameless and righteous in all his ways there's only earth like him does, does that mean job was sinless no. Did it mean that Job understood all facts of the universe, history, great controversy, God's character accurately? No. no. Did it mean Job had no fear to contend with in his life anymore? No. Didn't mean that either. No, it didn't. What does it mean? I think it means primarily that he trusted God. That his heart, his nat- remember the natural state of being for the sinful person, according to Romans 8, is enmity to God. We distrust him and we work against him. While Job didn't have everything all figured out accurately, he had actually come to a point where he genuinely trusted God. And that's why he could say, with misunderstanding, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Even though I don't understand it, I trust him completely. And God knew that his heart had been won over to complete trust. That is the same thing that you read about in Abraham and Abraham trusted God at Romans chapter 4, Galatians 4. Uh, Abraham trusted God, and his trust or faith was recognized as righteousness, or being set right, or being put right, or being justified. And justification is never a legal process. It is the transformation of the heart from a distrusting and, and fearful and closed state with God to a heart that may have misunderstanding still, but you trust him. Yes. I have a question. Maybe this is not the time to raise it, but um, in one of three friends' statements later in the book of Job, there's a statement made, um, despite the, the first chapters, which they were not aware of, okay? Christ said, or God said, um, here's the righteous man. And then one of um, the three friends says, there's no one righteous, no, not one. Now, we have the first chapter saying God said he is. But, but um, 
One of Job's friends says, there's no one righteous, no, not one. Paul pulls that out and quotes that as being accurate. Yes. I don't understand how that could be true. Because Paul is applying that. There's no one righteous separated from Christ in their own right. There's no one righteous without God and the Spirit working in them to recreate righteousness in them. So in our natural state, because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, and our natural state is enmity to God. We're not set right with him. Our heart is naturally one of distrusting him. And so only as the Spirit works and we are won back to trust are we then set right. And the righteousness doesn't come from something that we work hard to create. It comes as a gift from God through Christ and the Holy Spirit working in us. Okay. It's inaccurate in the book of Job, and yet it's quoted as being... Well, it's, it's, it's inaccurate in the book of Job because the book of Job's context is no one can be righteous. Paul is saying no one is naturally righteous, and the book of Job is saying no one can become or be righteous. Job wasn't naturally righteous, but he'd come to a point that he was righteous in character and relationship with God. Yes? Alden Thompson, in the book, um, Who's Afraid of the, of the Old Testament God, has a chapter about how the, the um, Jewish people extracted verses from the Old Testament and then gave them new meanings. It's an excellent chapter and would answer this question directly. So also we learn something else here from this context. Angels in heaven can't read hearts and minds. If they could read hearts and minds, how many angels would have been deceived by Lucifer in the first place? Oh, you're lying. I can see right through you. No, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have been deceived. And, and these allegations right here about Job would have had no weight if they could read hearts and minds. They could look right into Job's heart. They looked into Satan's heart and they would have known it was all fraud and a lie. And there would have been no weight, weight given to these allegations at all. So we learn angels can't read hearts and minds. We can learn that from this. Uh, we learn also that God's judgment is merely the accurate diagnosis of the condition of each person's heart. Have you come to trust in God and open your heart and let the Spirit come in and transform you? Or have you remained in distrust of God and kept the Spirit out and thus remained hardened in selfishness? And that Satan doesn't care about reality, what's true, what's accurate, what's real. He creates fantasy worlds, distortions, imaginary scenarios, and then and gets us to react to those. Fourth paragraph says, Amid the festivities of the sons and daughters, uh, Job trembled lest his children should, be, should displease God. As a faithful priest of his household, he sacrificed offered sacrifices for them individually. He knew the offensive character of sin and the thought that his children might forget the divine claims led him to God as an intercessor on their behalf. This is actually an Ellen White quote. Does it carry more weight with you because she wrote it? What does it mean? How do you read it? Is this a description of what God required? Read carefully. Some people, well, Ellen White wrote it. That's what God wants. No. This isn't a description of what God required or what God is like. That's not what she's describing. She's describing Job and how Job was thinking and how Job was functioning and Job's perspective and what Job thought. That's what she's describing. It's important to recognize that. Many people read that and go, oh, you had to to intercede with God. No, Job thought you had to intercede with God. You never find God saying that. I want to jump to Monday's lesson. It asks us to read... Job 1, 6 to 12, we don't have time to read all of that at this point, um, but it's that conflict up there, and it talks about the, the sons of God. Uh, it depends on your version in the, in the beginning. The, the NIV states the heavenly beings came before God. The, King, the uh, King James says angels came before, excuse me, 
The version in the lesson says heavenly beings. The, uh, the Good News translation says heavenly beings. The NIV states angels. And the King James Version states the sons of God. All for the same Hebrew there. Was it angels that came? Were it heavenly beings that came? Were it the sons of God that came? Well, the Hebrew that's translated there is Ben Elohim. Remember Ben-Hur? The movie Ben-Hur? And Ben means? Son of Elohim? God. Son of God. Sons of God. So more accurate, the King James is a little bit more accurate here, the sons of God. What, what do you think it means that many of the modern translators have not put sons of God, they put angels or heavenly beings instead of sons of God? What, what, why would they do that? They don't have the concept of who the great controversy. So they, they believe in angels, but they have a difficult time seeing intelligent life forms outside planet Earth other than angels. In the genealogy of Christ in the New Testament, if you go back to the genealogies, it's the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. In the genealogy of Christ, there's only one being who's called the son of God. That's Adam. Some commentators have suggested that in Job, when it refers to the sons of God, that it's referring to the first created beings of every world that God has ever created. So Adam would have been the representative head in this council from earth and the first being of all the other planets, the sons of God from all the universe had come and gathered. And this is what Wendell was getting to a moment ago where Satan comes from walking to and fro the earth alleging I'm here in Adam's seat. Great Congress, I'm sitting in the seat representing earth in the heavenly congress, the heavenly council meeting, I am the head of earth, the son of God from earth, basically. That's, that's what, what Satan is alleging here. And of course, that's where God goes, this is a perspective, wait, wait, wait. That's why he immediately goes, if you consider Job, Job doesn't recognize your authority. He doesn't follow your leadership. He's faithful and loyal and righteous to me. You can't have, you have no place in this council. You don't represent earth. And that's where Satan goes, oh, of course I do. He just pretends, he's, he's really on my side. He, he pretends to be on your side because you pay well. And we go the back and forth, and we have all these multiple layers. We have the, the, the Pastor Mesendek's uh, perspective of what's happening in Job's life. We have um, uh, Satan's allegations. Now we have God um, demonstrating through the life of Job that, in fact, Satan does not represent earth. He does not have authority. He is not the right, right ruler of earth. That's not true. It's a fraud, and it's a lie. And we get that demonstrated. Also, when God put Satan, put Job in Satan's hands, remember the, the, the instructions. He is in your hands, do with him what you will, but you can't touch him physically at first, and then later you can't kill him. God just said you, what you couldn't do. Did God restrict the types of things Satan could do other than kill him? No. Remember what... what, what Satan offered Jesus in the temptations? The third temptation? What was the third temptation of Christ? All the kingdoms. All the kingdoms of the world I will give you. Satan was free to bless Job. Give him more wealth. Give him more power. Have all the kings of the earth come and bow down before Job and worship Job. He was free to do that to Job. Why didn't he bless him? Because Satan is the destroyer in Scripture. And Satan reveals his character. God didn't limit Satan to hurt him. He just said he took the, you do what you, and Satan does what he did. It's his nature to do this. And Satan reveals his nature. Yes. 
the offering to Christ of all the kingdoms of the world was a specious offering because they were Christ's anyway. Uh, and if, if Christ had accepted that, it would have been a tacit um, admission that Satan was the rightful usurper. So this ties perfectly in to the Satan coming to and fro on the earth. Uh, have you considered my servant Job? You don't have the right to represent earth. You also don't have the right to offer me the right. kingdoms of the earth. Because why? Because I am the second Adam. There was an Adam who was the son of God, whose territory was earth. But Christ is the second Adam who reclaimed everything the first Adam contaminated and damaged and injured and lost. And if you know Christ now, and all Christian churches teach this, he is the representative head. He's the head of the church. He represents humanity now in God's kingdom in heaven. And so he takes the place Adam was supposed to take as our second Adam in this heavenly council. But more than that, he doesn't just occupy the the seat that Adam originally had in the council. He also now has moved all the way up to the throne and runs the whole universe. It's really profound. Yeah. And thus humanity has a higher, through Christ, has a higher position, if you will, than it had before. He lifted us higher than we actually were originally created to be. Which is servants of all. We are truly become servants of the universe. And we occupy thrones, but in God's kingdom, we are the servants. And how will we serve through eternity future? I think we serve in the eternity future by the witness the perpetual, never-ending story that we tell of God's redemptive love for us. That's a service we provide for all eternity future. We will travel the universe, planet all these representative heads. Wait, will you come to my planet this Sabbath? Give your testimony. Give your testimony. And, 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 and for eons, you're traveling and telling your story. And then at the end of the, the lesson on Monday and then on, on Tuesday's lesson, it talks about, uh, excuse me, on Thursday's lesson, it talks about the, the answers that we find, all the answers to Satan's allegations at the cross. That's what, and it points us, it's absolutely right. And so I had the questions for you to answer to me. Why was the cross necessary? What was the purpose of the cross? What did Christ achieve for us and the rest of the universe at the cross? And what did Christ actually accomplish at the cross? You have... 90 seconds to give me that answer. <laughs> Seriously. In my notes, I have 15 points. Well, he redeemed us. Yes, he redeemed us. From? What's that mean, redeem? From. From. From death. Slavery. From slavery. Slavery to what? To whom? Yeah. Do you have some clarity? Can you can you nutshell it down to to say very clearly? Um, you know, the, I, I think this particular metaphor, if you use this metaphor, it helps come to to very very quick. It's a metaphor, and you have to apply it through the design law lens, not through the imposed law lens. And imposed law lens leads you down the wrong trail. But the ransom metaphor, under imposed law, leads you the wrong way. Under design law, you can see very clearly. Because what does a ransom do in real life? What's the function of a ransom? It frees someone held in captivity. Okay, what holds us literally, actually, factually, what are we held in captivity by? Two things. The lies that we believe about God. If we can, even still today, even though Christ is the truth that will set you free, if you still hold the lies and believe lies, you're not freed by the truth. So you have to first come to the truth. The truth that Christ revealed will set you free from the lies. So one thing that, that is the ransom price was the truth 
that Christ had to reveal, which was revealed ultimately at the cross, that sets us free from lies. But there's something else that holds us in bondage besides the lies. Fear. Our sinful nature. Our sinful nature, which has its primary emotion as fear. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. And that fear drive causes us to be survival, focused on survival of the fittest type focus. And so we're held captive by lies, and we're held captive by our own fear-based self-centered natures. And Christ developed a perfect character, restored God's design of love into the species human, destroyed, if you will, if you want to use these words, destroyed the carnal nature, if you want to use that word, at the cross, rose on the third day in a humanity that he carried to completion or perfected. And thus he offers to us what he has achieved. And so you then put the scriptures together with that idea in mind. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives. We become partakers of the... He writes his law on the hearts. We have the mind of... Notice, this is not metaphor. This is the reality that we actually get a new set of, of, of motives, desires, insights, wisdom, uh, perspectives. We have a new heart and right spirit within through the achievements of Christ. That sets us free from the lies, wins us to trust, sets us free from the domination of our own nature that we can live a, a new life in Christ. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have achieved through Jesus Christ to restore us back into oneness and unity and perfection with you. There's so much misunderstanding in this world, Lord. We ask that you will guide each of us to a clear understanding and settle us into the truth that nothing can shake us from it. And that you will open the avenues here locally, around the world, with our friends who are watching online, that this message will go forward because we know it changes lives and that you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.